this morning, if you're new here, maybe you're a believer visiting from another church, maybe you're not a believer and you're just popping in to see what's, what, what's up with this thing called church, uh, I'm going to put a little disclaimer at the front end of this sermon and tell you that you're going to hear a little bit of an insider session. It's like uh, walking, instead of from the spectator stands, you're going across the field and into the dugout or into the locker room, and you're getting a peek into a session between the coach and the team uh, that is directly meant for the players, right? So you're welcome to listen in. Uh, You will hear pieces of how this applies to you. But this morning, this is a coach talking with his players about an issue on the field. When we're looking at Scripture, we often come across passages that are difficult to understand. You know, we need to admit that. They might be difficult to understand because we don't get the context. We just pop in the middle of a verse and we don't know where it came from. We didn't read the whole story. We're just trying to It's like we just want to pop a pill real quick. So we're just going in and we just want to do a real quick devotional and we don't know what's going on, who this guy is, what the problem is, what the situation is. So sometimes that's why it's hard to understand because we're not giving ourselves enough context. Sometimes the passage is difficult to understand because it's a high, we have to reach high up on the theological shelf to grasp what it's talking about. Big concepts like the Trinity or election and predestination. Um, They're not impossible to understand to get what Scripture is saying, but it's just a difficult concept to grasp. But I don't think those are the hardest passages to get. I think the most difficult passages to get are the ones that are very plain in what it says, but then when you look up around you and you look at the world around you, it doesn't match. Those are the hardest ones. That'll test your faith. The Bible says it right there. It looks, I can't, I don't know any other way to read it, But then when I look at my life, life doesn't look like that. Why is that? That incongruity is difficult. We're going to see one of those passages, which may surprise you, but this has been hanging me up all week, right? And that's in Mark chapter 1. So if you don't have a Bible, don't own a Bible, didn't bring one, just slip your hand up. We'll bring one to you, and you can use one of ours. And the book of Mark is in the New Testament. The Bible is divided into Old Testament, New Testament. The New Testament starts off with four Gospels, and Mark comes second in that lineup, Matthew and then Mark. And we're going to be in Mark chapter 1. You might say, well, you called it a Gospel. What's a Gospel? That's what he calls it in verse 1. This is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the good news That's what gospel means, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so like we covered last time, Jesus comes on the scene with John kind of paving the way. Here's the one that's come. We get that. We understand that. That's not difficult, right? Jesus comes. He's baptized because he's going to be that substitute. He's going to be that representative and live the life that we couldn't live so that he would die the death that we're supposed to die and then rising to life, welcome us and invite us into new life in him. Get that? Then he's taken immediately, verse 12, into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Satan doesn't want him to do that work. Satan doesn't want him to free enslaved people, people enslaved to sin. So Satan tries to trip him up, get him to sin. He doesn't. He's the God-man. He's perfect. 
And then he, after surviving that wilderness experience, verse 14, John is arrested. So Jesus goes full bore. He comes into Galilee, and what is his ministry? Jesus' ministry is proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's his message. What is Jesus doing in those three years before he's arrested and and killed? He's proclaiming a gospel. That's what he's doing. And the gospel is repent and believe in him, in Jesus. We covered that last time. Now, here's a passage. Seems simple enough. Seems easy to read. Doesn't have really big words in it. It's not that hard to understand culturally. You don't have to really go that far you know, back in time to really crack the code of what Mark is talking about. It goes like this, verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. I love that. Just in case you don't, well, why were they casting a net? That's so strange. Well, they were fishermen, that's why. Verse 17. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Is that, is that hard? You're fishing for fish. I'm going to make you fish for people now. You're fishermen. I'm going to make you fishers of men. I'm transforming you right now. Verse 18, immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending their nets. Verse 20, and immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. All right, so what's happening here? Jesus walks along the Sea of Galilee. He sees two dudes in a boat. They're casting nets into the sea. He interrupts their fishing trip, and he tells them, leave everything, come follow me. If you think this is cool, I'm going to show you something greater, bigger, grander. We're going to catch people for the kingdom. And they drop their nets and they follow him. And with those two guys behind him, he comes up and he sees James and John. He says, hey guys, I'm interrupting your conversation with Mr. Zebedee right here for a minute. Can you please stop talking? I want you to come with me now. And they don't go, hey, you're rude. We're talking. We're doing something right now. They drop their nets. I don't even know if they say bye, Dad. And they leave. And they follow him. To go do what? To go be fishers of men. To go catch people. What's the connection? Well, Mark tells us in verse 14 and 15 that Jesus goes on a mission. His mission is to proclaim the gospel. And then 16 to 20, he recruits disciples to help him in that mission. What are they going to catch men for? For the gospel. What are they going to catch men with? With the gospel. Proclaiming, repent and believe. If they repent and believe, that's a fish caught. It ain't that hard, right? It's right there. You see the connection. This is what Jesus is doing. And ever since those of us that grew up in church, little kids, you know, we've sing songs about fishers of men and all this stuff, and it's not that complicated. But what makes this a complicated verse for me is not because it's a high-shelf theological idea. It's easy to get. What's it like to catch fish in a net? You throw the net. You don't know which ones are going to fall in the net and which ones aren't, but you pull it up, and voila, by some 
miracle by some who knows what, there happened to be fish there. And sometimes you drop an empty net, and sometimes you drop a net that's really full, but most of the time there's going to be a lot of fish that escape the net, and some fish that get caught, and you haul them in the boat, and you just thank God that the fish that were caught in the net were caught in the net. And you drag it to shore, and those are your fish. What's it like to proclaim the gospel? You sow the seed to change metaphors. You don't know which ones are going to spring up, which, which ones fall on a path, which ones fall on rocky soil, uh, weedy soil, or good soil. But the ones that landed on good soil, those are the ones that come up. Or, to go back to the original metaphor, the ones that come up out of the water in the net, those are the ones that God caught. He caught them. So go cast nets. Go be fishers of men. So not difficult to understand. We don't have to dive into what's the history of fishing. What were the nets really like back then? All week I've been reading about, well, the, what they would do is one guy would dive and they had weights on the end. And it's like, it doesn't matter. We get the concept. What's difficult is I look at this and I'm seeing Jesus call disciples and I'm seeing Jesus calling disciples to do something. Really to be something. A fisher of men. And when I look up around and I look at discipleship today, it doesn't look like that. Does it look like that to you? Are most of us, could most of us categorize ourselves as fishers of men? Where we go out and we cast nets, meaning we proclaim a gospel of repentance and belief? Or do most of us kind of go about doing our work, making sure our kids are finishing their homework, tucking them in at night, getting our stuff ready for the next day of work, packing our lunch, catch the train, pay the toll, get to work, do our punch in, our punch out, come home, Talk with your spouse about how stressful it is at work. Calm down. Order food. Is that mainly what we do? Or are those just things that happen along the way to our main mission, which is at work, it was stressful, but I talked to Frank today. On the train, I, I was really trying to catch up on some of my audiobooks. But I saw this woman sitting there, and I pulled the headphones on, and I just proclaimed the gospel to her. At first, she was shocked that I knew I had three minutes left. I'll probably never see this woman again, but I gave her the gospel. Are those the conversations we're having? Because I don't really hear that a lot. And it's easy for me to fire a bunch of darts from up here, like I'm some awesome evangelist that's setting the world on fire. I'm talking about me. I spend all my time with Christians. I proclaim the gospel a lot to believers. That's not casting nets. So I'm looking at this verse, and I have a problem with myself. Am I that? Am I, am I this? Is this how I follow Christ? Do I follow Christ by proclaiming the gospel, casting nets with people? So it's not a difficult passage because it falls in the hard theology category or a difficult passage because it falls into the strange historical stuff category or we're in some strange you know, literary genre of the book. No, it's, it's pretty straightforward. And we get what he's getting at, at least we think. But it doesn't look like it to me in real life. And maybe that's just our American culture version of Christianity. But I just look around my context where I live, I even look at myself and I don't, I don't see it the way it should be. So I wrestled with this. I wrestled with this all week. 
I even thought, what if we're reading it wrong? I wanted to give the, the, a fair shot to the possibility that we're reading it wrong. I don't want to stand up here and go, every single one of you should be casting nuts. If that's not really what the Bible is saying. I mean, some of us are really introverted and shy. You know, I am. And it's a common misunderstanding when people go, how can you stand up in front of a bunch of people and talk and say that you're introverted? Because this is different. I remember years ago, and I was a kid, watching Michael Jackson get interviewed. And he, who had bigger concerts than Michael Jackson? I mean, he's, but in interviews, he's like a little mouse. Like he doesn't want to be interviewed. He's like real shy and stuff. Being up in front of a bunch of people in a one-sided conversation is different than sitting down with someone looking you in the face. And, so where are you from? That, that's different. Well, some of us are introverted. Some of us are really shy, and others, others, others of us are not that shy. But God kind of wired us differently. So how can all of us be expected to be the conversation starter, the conversation interrupter, like Jesus? Just walking up to a bunch of guys that he wasn't invited, to, he wasn't invited into that. And Jesus isn't a fisherman. He's a carpenter. And there's no long buildup. It's not like he's fishing next to them and he's hoping that they notice him. And, you know, and then he starts a weird conversation. Hey, want to borrow my net? And hopefully over time, they'll invite me over to dinner. He just like, pow, kicks the door in. Like, you, follow me. Let's go. I don't do that. I'm shy. So I'm thinking about, man, that doesn't really match personalities. It doesn't even match calling, right? Because you read in the New Testament that uh, Christ gives some evangelists to the church. Not everyone's an evangelist, but we thank God that we have evangelists that are running around and doing this awesome work, and they're especially trained and especially gifted. That's great, but we're not all evangelists. We can't be. And then some of these guys, evangelists, pastors, they have special training, and maybe they get their Master of Divinity, or you know, because the church supports them financially, they're able to pour a lot of energy and time into training getting trained so that they can do this kind of work? Maybe it's for those people. What about the plumber? What about the stay-at-home mom? Running around with kids and parent-teacher conferences and all that kind of stuff. Are they all supposed to be casting nets? It sounds like it's a hard task for someone who has to know what they're doing. Because you talk to someone about the gospel and they immediately ask difficult questions about science and creation and the problem of evil and why did my grandfather die young and why, why did I lose my job? God is mean. How do you respond to that? I don't have time to train in answering all those kinds of questions. So maybe it's that. And then another thing I thought was, you know, this is, this is the apostles, man. You know, James and John and Peter, I mean, these guys, they write scripture they're healing people on the spot. They're apostles. They, the reason why they're apostles is because they spent personal time with Jesus. They were there seeing the ministry happen, learning at his feet. They got so much more than we got captured in the Gospels. They, John tells us there's so much more that happened, but you know, there's not enough ink and parchment in the world to, to capture what happened, so this will suffice. That's how he ends his Gospel. There's so much more that the, the apostles had than we got. And then you have three of them all recording many of the same things. It's like, dude, give us a different story. I want more, right? But we don't have it. The disciples had it. The original disciples had it. So they're special. 
Maybe Jesus is calling the apostles to do it. I'm calling you 12 as my apostles, which means messenger, to go and cast nets. But that doesn't mean everybody in the church. That doesn't mean you know, from your youngest to the oldest, to the, to the shut-in, to the college student. I mean, everybody has different things going on, but some were apostles in the beginning. Or we can open it up and say apostles kind of passed the mantle on to pastors. Not to be Catholic about it, but, you know, just the full-time investment in ministry. Maybe it's pastors. Maybe it's a pastor thing. So they were kind of like the first elders. So elders should be doing it. Maybe it's those things. But we can't look around us and go, hmm, my experience is telling me something different. Let me reinterpret the verse. We have to let the verse stand on its own legs. One of the ways you do that is to compare it with other passages. We'll do that in a second. But here's one thing I want you to notice. Here's what bothered me. Here's what doesn't let me go to the, eh, maybe it's just for pastors, or eh, maybe it was just for the apostles. I think what Mark here is doing is he's defining discipleship itself. Disciple means student. What does it mean to be a student of this particular teacher? What does it mean for someone to be uh, trained by this particular master? Well, he uses the word follow three times. In verse 17, it's the first word that comes out of Jesus' mouth toward them. Follow. Follow me. And what did they do in verse 18? They followed him. And when he calls... James and John, he calls them. You figure he must have said something similar to what he said before because we don't get another quote. But at the end of verse 20, what was their response? They left their father with a bunch of hired servants, and what did they do? They followed him. Follow, follow, follow. So here you have Jesus proclaiming the gospel, and the first thing he does is recruit people to follow him And what does following mean according to Mark? According to Mark, following Jesus means sharing in that task of proclaiming the gospel. He doesn't say, follow me and I'll change your character. Follow me and I'll make your marriages better, guys. Follow me and I'll make your life a lot better. I'll change your life. He's going to do those things. He doesn't say, follow me, I need companions. Follow me, I need some friends. Follow me, you need a friend. Follow me, you guys need to understand fellowship if you're going to build a church. All those things are just pieces of the pie, but what he says is, follow me in what sense? In the sense that I'm going to teach you how to do what I'm doing back up in verse 15, 14 and 15. I'm proclaiming the gospel. I'm casting nets. You're going to cast nets now. Follow me. What does Christian mean? It means to be a follower of Christ. What is the disciple? A disciple is a student. What's, what's captivating here? is that I think most of us, if we were to define discipleship, we might exclude evangelism, or evangelism might come really low on a long list. But for Mark, it's what it is. To follow Jesus is to fish for Jesus. To be a disciple is to make disciples. When you read Mark's explanation of what's going on when Jesus recruits disciples, and that, where else can we go? What is a disciple? Where else can we go to define discipleship except to go to the passage where Jesus recruits disciples? And Mark is saying Jesus had a mission, and then he recruits these men to join him in that mission. So to be a disciple is to make disciples, and I, I don't know any other way to read it. 
I, I can't shoehorn in there an excuse of like, yeah, but it was just for that time. Another reason why I can't do that is not just because this verse itself seems to just really connect following Jesus with fishing for Jesus, but when you look at other passages, it seems to bear it out. So we don't always hop around a different bunch of scriptures, but we're going to put four up on the screen for you. You can turn to it in your own Bibles if you would like to. But the first one's in Matthew chapter 5. There's Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Who's Jesus talking to in the Sermon on the Mount? Disciples. Normal people. Not just the apostles, but the hillside filled with all the people that are following him. And what does Jesus say? When Jesus, uh, no, that's, that's not right. Like we want 516. Right? Look, it's just to the left. You're in Mark, right? Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. Here's what he says. He's talking about Christians being a light of the world in verse 14. Christians uh, are a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. We don't light a lamp and then put it under a basket, verse 15. You guys remember this verse, right? Those of you that have been here for a while. You're supposed to give light that shines. You put it on a stand and it shines in all the houses. In verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and as a result, do what? Give glory to the Father who is in heaven. Let your light shine. People see your light shine so that they might, all of them won't, but some of them will, as a result of the light that you shine in your life, give glory to God the Father. And who's he talking to? His disciples, verse 1. Which included more than the 12. There's a couple in Acts. We have Acts 1.8. Jesus is about to ascend, leave his disciples. He promises them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The end of the earth? Or just as far as 12 guys can make it in the time that they have left remaining in their lives? No, the end of the earth. Well, how? Well, the disciples keep passing that mantle on to other disciples. That's how. How is because it's not just 12 guys that are witnesses. It's everyone. Everyone that's a disciple is a disciple maker. Everyone that's a disciple bears that responsibility to be a witness you're a witness of this gospel that Jesus proclaimed, and you go out into your end of the earth. I don't live in Judea or Jerusalem or Samaria. I live in an end of the earth, some other section, some other far-reaching place that it took a long time for the gospel to get there, but that's where we are. So my point is, it would be impossible for 12 guys to fulfill this verse. It has to be more than the 12. Later on in chapter 8 of Acts, the Saul approved of execution. These are Christians getting killed for proclaiming the gospel. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. Who were scattered? All of them. All of who? The disciples. The people that proclaimed the gospel that was offending people. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered, what were they doing? Hiding? Preaching the word. And guys, the, the people scattered here, you're, you're normal Christians. The men and the women that are getting dragged off to prison, the ones that haven't been dragged off to prison yet, they're still out preaching the word. 
This is more than Peter and Andrew and James and John. This is the people that are disciples of the disciples of the disciples. As as it's spreading and expanding, people have always understood that to follow Jesus means to proclaim Jesus. There's, There's not an out, really. We have this amazing news of rescue for, for those of us, uh, for people that are uh, in bondage to sin and death, we have the rescue note. Here's a possible salvation. Of course we're supposed to proclaim it. It's the Christian thing to do. Last one we'll put up there, 1 Peter 3.15. We were there a couple of weeks ago. Peter's writing to Christians, dispersed, suffering various levels and kinds of persecution. He tells them to honor Christ the Lord in their hearts as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That's where we get apologetics from, defending the faith. And who is this for? Every Christian. Which Christians in a church should be able to defend the gospel when someone asks them about it? This hope that you have. I hope you understand the hope you have is the gospel. Which of us should be able to defend it, according to Peter? Yeah, everyone, right? He's writing to everyone and saying, hey, this is an expectation of everybody. So we go back to Mark. We're looking at chapter 1. Jesus calls his disciples. And a lot of time elapsed between verses 14 and 15 and when he calls the disciples. When you read the other Gospels, there's time in there. But Mark is... He's just giving you snippets, and he's putting the snippets next to each other for you to see something. What he wants you to see is that when Jesus started proclaiming the gospel, that is connected to Jesus recruiting people to proclaim the gospel with him. In other words, Mark wants you to see that discipleship is not something else separate from Jesus' mission of getting the gospel out there to people that are lost. It's connected, it's the same. So... If we look at this passage and then we look around us and the passage doesn't seem to match the lives around us, there's two options. We can change our understanding of the verse or we can change how we live the verse. And if you are committed to the authority of Scripture and the clarity of Scripture, meaning, yes, some of them are hard to understand, but you can understand it. You don't have to be a scholar to understand what Scripture is saying, especially in a passage like this. And we can't honestly take the first option and change our understanding of what Scripture says. Yeah, I think that was just for the apostles. That'll make me feel more comfortable. That'll allow me to kind of be an incognito Christian that kind of slips into church on Sunday and slips out. And at, at work, people don't really know what my life is really about. They might know I go to church, but they know I won't bother them. They won't bother me. Let's just, let's just not disrupt anything. I don't want to rock any boats. That would be very comfortable. I'm not ready to go out there scattered and get thrown to jail or lose my job or lose friends or have awkward Facebook conversations or lose Twitter followers, right? I don't want to sacrifice anything. So there's that carnal temptation I have to understand the verse in a different way. Let's, let's, Let's inject something in there to kind of give us an out, but I can't do that in good conscience. What's the other option? The other option is, We're supposed to live like it even though we don't. I was reading this book um, by Mark Dever. What is a healthy church? I commend it to you. And when he's talking about a healthy church, he's he's writing 
to a reader who's asking a question, how do I know I'm a part of a church that's what the church should be? I mean, what are the, what are the first things I should be looking for? One of the things he talks about is a church that really believes the gospel and a church that really believes the gospel will have an overflow of the gospel going out to people outside of the four walls of the church. He quotes this pastor from 1917, George W. Truett of First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. Here's what he had to say. The supreme indictment that you can bring against the church is that such a church lacks in passion and compassion for human souls. A church is nothing better than an ethical club if its sympathies for lost souls do not overflow and if it does not go out to seek to point lost souls to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. What's an unhealthy church? An unhealthy church is a church that doesn't go out and proclaim the gospel, guys. It doesn't matter if your budget is intact. It doesn't matter if you're debt-free and you don't have a mortgage. It doesn't matter if we all agree the same and every time we vote, it's 100% one way. Those are all great advantages. But can we really call ourselves a healthy church if we don't engage in fishing for people? He closes that chapter, Mark Dever does, by saying this simply, a healthy church knows the gospel and a healthy church shares it. So when I think about a passage like this, quotes like that, that make me think, I think they're on it. I think that's what Mark would tell us if he were here right now. I think he would say, yes, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is what I'm trying to communicate in this passage. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're called to cast nets for the gospel. Now, if you're like me, like I've been all week, you're kind of kicked in the gut by this passage because I'm not, I'm, again, I'm talking to myself and I don't do it, I think, the way I should. There's two observations that I think we need to notice here in this passage before we close it up. And the first one is the way that Jesus calls them. These men are completely gripped by the authority of Jesus Christ in their life. Now, we know from the other Gospels, this is probably not the first time that he's ever met them. It's not like they don't know who this guy is. They know who Jesus is, and they've heard him teach. But he comes up to them, and he gives them a command. To call it an invitation is, is not, not quite accurate. He's not inviting them. He's not laying out a welcome mat and saying, let me know what you think. Call me in a couple days. Hey, I'll text you later, give you some time to think about it. Follow me now, right now, let's go. What are you going to follow me to do? It's not going to be a surprise, I'm going to tell you right now. You're going to be doing a kind of fishing, it's going to be fishing for people. It's not going to be a popular message, it's not going to be a message that people are going to think are, is awesome all the time, but some will, some will, some will be caught. Eventually they had to understand that this is a message that they'll have to die for. But follow me. Follow me goes up to James and John. And their, their father's name is Zebedee, the strong Greek name, and they've got hired servants, they've got money, probably a successful business. And they just immediately drop it. Bye. Now, I need you to understand, especially in our culture now, when we're growing up, we can't wait to leave our parents. 
I can't wait to get out. Not, not so, not so then. You had a family business. That was your thing. This was built up for generations. You don't just walk away and go be a plumber. Right? Now, this is like you can erase your past, go to college, pick your major, and com- be completely something different from what anyone else in your family has been. Not then. They were fishermen. That's what they did. And they already had hired servants. It was, their father is right there. He's training them to take the business when he dies, and they just leave them. Not likely. Unless someone comes into their life with an authoritative call, something clicks in their heart and they go, I don't know what this is all about. I wasn't planning on this this morning. But something's happened inside of me that makes me and compels me to follow this man, Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you this morning, a mark of a Christian is that yielding to that authoritative call. If you're in here this morning and you're like, man, I know this is telling me I'm supposed to be fishing for men, but I just don't really want to. So forget it. Are you a follower? Has Christ come into your life and snapped you awake yet? Or are you kind of just attending church and coming to church? There's a difference. Now we want you to come to church and listen to the gospel. That's great. But to be a Christian doesn't mean attending church. To be a Christian doesn't mean putting money in a plate when it comes by. Or to sing songs when the lyrics are up on the screen. That's a part of worship and those are all important things. Do not get me wrong. But when you stand before heaven one day, as the old you know, proverb goes, when you, if you were to die tonight and stand before St. Peter at the pearly gates, whatever, you can't go, I sang songs, let me in. I stopped cussing, let me in. It's Jesus snapped me awake. I repented, believed, and followed by his grace alone. That's the work that has to happen in us to be a fisher. I've got to be a follower first. And maybe some of us were not really followers or we're not acting like it. But he needs to speak into your life with this authority. And we need to recognize as Jesus, our favorite star athlete, you know, is he like a guy we like to follow? Like we follow people on Twitter? It doesn't really, we really follow them. Or is he king? If he's king, that's different. And we need to obey. So it's an authoritative call to fish for men. The other observation is more encouraging. Is that he doesn't ask them to make themselves fishers. He doesn't say, follow me and make yourself a fisher. Follow me and start evangelizing, you lazy bum. Follow me and I'm going to do something. I am going to make you something you never thought you would be. But I'm shy, but I don't have the gifting, but I don't have even better. Because now I get more glory making a fisher out of somebody who no one thought that would be a fisher. No one thought this person would talk to strangers, talk to people, deliver the gospel. But Jesus wants to take weak people and use the weak people to bring the gospel to the world. This is why he goes up to fishermen. Don't disrespect to fishermen, but I mean, it's not like these guys had three PhDs, you know, they, they didn't have tweed jackets with the leather patch elbows, smoking pipes around the fire, talking about languages that nobody speaks anymore. That wasn't these guys. These guys knew how to fish. 
They knew how to make the money to support their family, and it was hard, muscular, sweaty work. And he calls those guys to be his first. You wouldn't have guessed that. He didn't go to the synagogue to get them. He didn't go to the academy to get them. He went to the beach to get his guys. It's not about intelligence, knowledge, education. It's about yielding to the promise that he'll make you. He'll make you that fisher of men. He promises that to them. So when they drop their nets and they follow him, they're not just dropping their nets and following him based on a command, but also based on a promise. It's a command promise. Follow me, and I'll make you into fishers of men. Took them a while. As we read through the Gospel of Mark, and as we walk through over the next who knows how many sermons, it's, it's going to be a little bit. We're going to see these men fail and falter and question Jesus and think about him wrongly and say the wrong things and do the wrong things and get scared and cowardly. But Jesus uses a messed up bunch to be his proclaimers. And it's no different today. If you wait until you completely understand all of the Bible and you've got all this stuff under your, under your belt and you can answer any apologetic question, you're never going to do it. You're never going to do it. So when you see me up here with Pastor Paul Alexander doing a Q&A, we're not up here because we think we figured it out. We want to show you that these questions aren't that difficult. So he gives them this promise, and when we follow Jesus, we cling to that promise, not just that he'll clean up our lives, but that he'll make us into something. And the something that he wants to make you into is someone who proclaims his gospel to lost people. So I want to leave you with maybe some tips. I don't know. I'm not usually a preacher that closes with, with personal tips, but I just, I, I don't, and there's another reason why I wrestle with this. I don't want to just say, you know, fish, get out there and fish. I don't care how, I don't care when, I don't care how long it takes, just get out there and fish. Goodbye. Let's go have potluck. I want to give you these tips out of my own life because I don't see myself as an evangelist. Something I've been reminded of recently, especially by my wife who does this more than I do, don't give up on prayer for those who reject. In other words, you finally say, okay, I'm going to say something. I'm going to go up to this coworker. I'm going to go up to this classmate. I'm going to go up to my roommate, finally, or whoever it is, and I'm going to say something. And they just slam the door shut. Don't tell me anything about Christianity. Boom. And they just slam the door shut. You're like, whoa, okay, okay. And you go, look, hey, I tried it. I cast the net and nothing came up. Cast it again. And one of the ways you do that is through prayer. We're not asking you to just be annoying like, I know you slammed the door in my face last night, but listen to me. Boom, they slammed the door again. Next time, come with an apple pie. You know, please, I really want to talk to you about the gospel. Slam the door again. Don't be annoying. But don't, don't give up on them either and go, well, forget it. Pray for them. Pray for an opportunity. Pray for a time when they break down. And they go, man, who should I call? I tried my psychologist, and he just gives me a bunch of psychobabble. I'm tired of sitting on the couch and getting a bunch of, you know, interpretation of my dreams that don't mean anything. I'm tired of watching, 
you know, the talking head on TV or the counselor. I'm tired of reading the column in the newspaper. I want answers. Who knows? Maybe this crazy kook that lives next door and showed up with apple pie the other day. Maybe they know something. And then maybe they reach out. But the reason why they did is because you've been laying down thick blankets of prayer. Don't give up. Keep them on your prayer list. Another one is switch fishing holes. We can't just go, well, I knocked on that door and they said no, so I have them on my prayer list and that's my fishing. Fish somewhere else. What about someone else? Someone else in your life. Someone that you've met on Facebook. Someone that you met at the park. Someone that you know, you're standing in line with. Who knows? It doesn't matter. You're just, you're just supposed to be casting nets. How do you pick your spots? I don't know. I don't know. But I think the Lord will lead you into those situations if you leave your heart open to it. God, if, you, if I run into someone today that can really hear the gospel, would you, because I'm really thick-headed, would you just like, knock me on the head and go, hey, talk to this guy or something? You know, would you just encourage me, make me think of it? And it's not going to be like an angel appears next to you in your car and goes, hey, as soon as you pull up to work, talk to this guy. It, it might just be you think of it. It might just be you pull up, guy's changing his tire, you roll up your sleeves to help, and in that conversation, you see an opening to say something. But if you're not thinking, Lord, help me, give me an opportunity, give me an opportunity to say something, then it's never going to happen. If it's not intentional, it doesn't happen. So make it intentional. Wake up in the morning and go, who am I going to talk to today? Or at the beginning of your week, go, I've got to talk to somebody. By the end of this week, I've got to talk to somebody. Bring it up to your small group. And this has helped me. There's been more than a couple times where Marty has contacted me like, hey, have you talked to that dude? I'm like, uh, I'm about to. <laughs> and then I do, right? So even myself, we need those prods. We need those encouragements to say, hey, man, you told us about this guy or this woman or this person, right? And you said you were going to talk to this kid, this adult, whatever. Did you do it yet? We all need that. I need that. Last one, think about ways that you can expand your reach, right? Do something new. Some of us, are, we're such creatures of habit, we do everything the same way, the same time, in the same method, we eat the same foods, we go to the same places, we always meet only the same people, we have a very closed circle in life. We've had the same barber for 50 years, we go to the same diner for 50 years, we don't meet anybody else. Change it up a little bit. Maybe meet someone else, meet someone different. I've talked to that neighbor, but I haven't talked to that neighbor because that neighbor is really annoying. That's okay. Talk to the annoying neighbor, right? Think about people in your life that you might have contact with or you wouldn't have contact with if you didn't change up how you do things. Some of you know that uh, I have a book club discussion group uh, at the local library. Why'd I do that? Well, because I'm with Christians all the time. And I want to talk to people that aren't Christian. And so I said, let me talk to some people who just want to read books, novels, historical fiction, whatever. It doesn't matter. I just had one rule up front. I'm not reading trash. I'm not going to read trash. We're going to read classics. I don't want every other word to be an F-bomb. I'm not interested in reading about sexual escapades. But if we can keep it clean, let's, let's, let's read some classics, some works. And they're like, yeah, let's do it. I've got about four guys in that group. And uh, hopefully over time, I can continue to talk with them. One of them already, over dinner, we had quite an exchange about 
the gospel. I don't know if I'm doing it right, but I want to do something. I don't want to read a passage like this and go, man, thank God for people that actually obey that. I want to obey, right? But the key is understanding that Jesus will give you what it takes to obey this passage. He doesn't give the command without the promise. If he gave the command without the promise, we'd all fail. But he gives the command with the promise of life change such that we will become the type of person who fishes for people and will become a kind of church that intentionally proclaims the gospel. Let's pray. Fathers, we close this time in a song. We ask that as we sing it, it would be an anthem to us, reminding us of your grace, reminding us of the gospel, and that we would be encouraged to proclaim these awesome truths that we sing that people don't have, they don't know. They're going along in life, heading toward this precipice of death, beyond which is just more death. God, we have this message of life after death, union with our Creator through Jesus Christ. So we ask that you would give us what we need to do that as we sing this to you. Would you work that into our hearts? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.